Hello and welcome to the Education Marketer Podcast. Ambassador marketing is no longer a secret weapon. The majority of schools are now either A, already working with ambassadors, or B, wishing that they could do so more. So how do you differentiate with your own peer-to-peer activity? Joining me today is Stuart Smith, Director at IDP, and Nick Higgins, co-founder at the Ambassador Platform. We share how the best ambassadors are helping students map out their future and why schools should strive to be different with their ambassador marketing in 2024. Let's get on with the show. I think like good marketing is about like fit and matching and there's no point in getting someone to come to you for the wrong reasons. If you really truly care about the education and the outcome for the student being the outcome, not the, the enrollment, like the post graduation success is what we're all aiming for. Like certainly for our business, like our work in this space, is that we want to get students the life outcomes from studying overseas. It's not about the enrollment outcome. It's that they feel that we help them make the right decision to get that life outcome. And that they would recommend us because we help them with their life. And I think that philosophy for institutions is something important to think about as well. You know, good recruitment and virtuous, it's virtuous for brand building. It's good for so many other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think students will feel that it's a very different feeling to being marketed to. Yeah. And we often talk about the power of word of mouth. And when you say that the image is like someone's literally sitting next to you and talking to you about something, but actually it's about, you know, that overall experience, isn't it? And we know peer to peer is that way to almost scale the human, right? And if you have those right people representing you, then that word of mouth can be almost escalated at a a wider scale. Um, you mentioned, um, fit and marketing and Nick, I want to go to you for, for this one. Um, I think typically in the past we've viewed the peer to peer journey is almost a student will come to a website, they'll find the, the way to have a, a peer conversation and that's how that relationship starts. But your research has recently highlighted that students increasingly and very commonly now go to social media, seek out a student at an institution independently via those channels and then strike up that conversation. So there's a whole new angle on um, peer-to-peer in terms of discoveries for us to be thinking about. In your experience, because you've worked with many schools now, what's your opinion on some of the less obvious strategies that schools should be adopting in that space? How can they almost close the gap between what they're doing on social media and those really powerful ambassadors that they have as part of those programs? Thanks, Carl. It's a fascinating question. First, for me, it's been a really interesting um, lessening kind of uh, category and product theory to see how the market has defined peer-to-peer as this kind of simplistic idea of a student dropping on a website and starting a conversation. I should say, that's definitely not how we actually think about it. You know, peer-to-peer is just a, it's it's, it's a term that's, you know, kind of been applied to a, a group of technologies like us, anybody going campus connect, there's lots of kind of peer-to-peer technologies. But our kind of philosophy at TAP is that what we're calling peer-to-peer here, really what it's about is providing authentic and complete insights for prospective students and communicating, I suppose, like the the slightly hard to define experiential element being at a university. And just linking back to Stuart's point, I think that is, that's a crucial element for ensuring that you find best fit students who can flourish at your institution all the way to, you know, post-graduation because it's in the kind of indeterminate indefinable experiential element of 
going to a university, studying, getting a degree, making friends, that really the element of best fit emerges, whether it's going to be right for you as an individual. So I kind of think at TAP, yeah, we have to use this term peer to peer because that's what everyone in the market understands, but we're all about how do we get out the most complete and most nuanced insight into what it's going to be like you know, to be a student at an institution. And of course, if you're going to give that insight in a kind of complete way, you have to do it in various modalities and across various channels. So yes, a chat on a website is really useful, but I think as humans, we, we see things we like to, uh, you know, kind of learn about what something looks like, get a sense of it. And so a huge part of our strategy at TAP is to enable institutions to work with ambassadors, basically just create lots of content. So prospective students, even if they are on the other side of the world, can see what it's going to be like to, to study at this place, but kind of answering your, sorry, that was a bit of a pitch, but to answer your question specifically, I, I think like the, the, the kind of first unobvious way that universities can do this, which actually is quite obvious is just make your students available on your social media channels. If prospective students are going to circumvent other university communications, go straight to social media and find a, uh, a, a student. Then having one that, you know, at, at least understands the kind of messages that you might want to co uh, communicate as an institution, as well as being able to speak authentically is really important. And just concretely, if a student's doing a search, the more kind of content created by ambassadors and more current students you have present on your channels, you know, the more likely it is that that query returns an actual student, which is what you want. And then at a product level, um, we tried to think about this in the architecture of TAP, so really simply in the, the content area of our platform, I, I won't go into detail here. Institutions are able to collaborate with ambassadors, create content, take a look at that content, check that it's kind of on brand and it's cool and it's sending the right messages and then syndicate that seamlessly out to social media. And when they do that platform, creates some clever links, which allow a prospective student who finds that content to return back to the ambassador's profile and start conversations. We've tried to kind of close the leap, there, but that very much isn't a pitch for tap. I think if you're not using us or any peer to peer platform, the way to do it is from the ground up, base your social media strategy and output on the students. And I think you will, you, you will struggle, go wrong, give me do that. Well, just over a year ago now, we had this huge sort of spike in people talking about social search. And I would have thought by now, a, a lot of those uh, ambassador-led searches or university-based searches in social media would have been captured, almost like everything Google was now pretty much captured. I went on there probably about a month ago, did a bit of a deep dive, and I was amazed at how wide open some of these terms are. So, you know, from personal experience, I'd urge anyone, if you've got your ambassadors set up and they're good and already creating content, look how you can create content that is optimized towards some of these key phrases, because there's no one bothering you for it. It's wide open. There's loads of white space, way better than going head to head with people and other institutions in Google. So yeah, you might have to turn the wheel a little bit more to keep this stuff top of mind. But if you focus on some key phrases and put your institution alongside like some decent peer to peer content, you're, you're going to stand out. In 2018, we did a research paper looking at what percentage of comments on university Instagram posts are the genuine inquiries from students get responded to. And the response rate is very, very low. And recently so i follow lots of institutions on my own instagram i was like you know what i sat one evening i was like i'll just have a look at some posts because i would have thought in the kind of five years since then that that's you know a gap that's absolutely been filled and it's not there are still lots of genuine questions high value uh, 
inquiries that are being missed. So I just think the basics of get your students out there, make sure you answer the stuff. Like you say, fill in these social search terms, like that can be a big win for institutions. Mm. Do you think there's maybe room then to, we have social media, we've got it on lock really. There's a lot of universities now with decent sized social teams. Do you think there's equally space for community managers to now become more established roles in institutions? Because for me, social is increasingly becoming about broadcast media, but what you're talking about here, comments, engagement, you know, deep in those relationships, that feels like a different role, a different focus. Stuart, what do you think on that one? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there's like this, that, that, that's the, the earlier thought, like this thing about being helpful. I, I totally agree that it's wide open. And we've got this internal guiding research study that we use that has over 60,000 students have contributed to it. It's just really, as you said, I've been in the sector for a long time. It's kind of crazy that we're at this point, 20 years since I started. And still the things that students say that they don't get enough of at research stage are like really fundamental basic questions. I think it's not just that the answers aren't there, but that actually students want a multitude of opinions and voices. Because uh, actually a good decision making is about like triangulating lots of different things. And like students are quite used to doing that in other social channels, aren't they? So I, I think like finding one answer from one source delivered in one way is not, is not actually satisfying to young people that they're used to finding one thing and then that's spiraling into lots of other things we all go down holes on social channels watching things like that natural browsing behavior of you start one place and it goes somewhere else and if you're not not putting yourself out there i mean there's one being helpful but there's also just people being being exposed to your brand like if you're not a big brand like being helpful is a great way of growing reach and an evergreen way of growing reach, yeah. like it keeps on paying back. Like there's a lot in that space. Uh, we had a, someone say that, yeah, they want a community manager role. So yeah, we've nailed something there. Um, seems to get a bit of sentiment here from the audience. Uh, you mentioned experiential marketing earlier, Nick. And Stuart, I know you've been doing a little bit of work into what this might look like through an ambassador lens. You have established a, a new way of thinking about this. So you call them, let me get the right, the phrasing right here arrival ambassadors this isn't a new like idea in higher education it's quite familiar students arrive they have a bunch of people to show them around the institution but you've changed how we think about this so you are setting up arrival ambassadors groups comprised of ambassadors in all different institutions and using them as also like a service for new students joining a university or, or a city tell us a little bit about that and some of the behavioral change that you've seen in students who've joined those groups and what perhaps the difference is between that kind of activity and what is more familiar with schools just working with their own ambassadors yeah yeah so so we have this sort of orientation towards we call it arrive and thrive and i guess it is going back to that success piece right like traditional things are about like get you to campus but actually we want you to make your transition to a new country and settle in and have a happy life and there's a you know there's a lot of things like moving to a new country that are like that could impact your outcome and whether you stay that are not to do with the course of the institution they're to do with like i don't know like if your religion your food your community your safety that you make friends so like we have this thought around actually institutions do a lot of good work about bringing them students into their community but actually, one thing that we can do is help you meet other people who are similar to you that IDP has set, helped placed in a city. So we did quite a lot in Australia. You're going to move to Adelaide. 
meet a student from your country who's living in Adelaide, like who has similar interests and similar personality to you, who becomes your friend, your buddy, who helps you before you arrive to make all the right decisions to arrive successfully, who introduces you to other people, who helps you like establish a social life and uh, integrate culturally and socially and, you know, is your person. They're not there to help with your studies. They're there to help you be happy and successful. It's like, you know, it's the beginning of you forming a new network in a new place, which is quite daunting for some people, you know, not everyone's an extroverted individual. And like, mm -hmm. so like having this safety of someone who can help you feel connected, um, quite helpful and like connecting it back to that students not coming piece is also quite helpful that these conversations are happening. And if students are becoming unconfident, like how do we understand from listening to these conversations, like the things that are impacting student confidence in coming from a strategy perspective, you know, if like if certain visa policy things that are being said or not said and are making students feel that, like, oh, I'm not going to come because post-study work might not be a guaranteed thing for me. And that means that, you, you know, loads of students are starting to doubt their choice. How do we know that that's happening and how do we combat that? Like partly it happens from having the conversation going on in one-on-ones and with the community and us putting things out there to do stuff about it. Otherwise the end, end, end outcome is students don't come and it all becomes about the next cycle. There's, you know, there's some things for students, but there's also things for us to understand about how we are adapting in real time to the context of what's happening in the world and how that's impacting students. And often a lot of the noise is not actually something for students to worry about, but it can turn into fear very easily. Um, mm. And like, yeah, not, if you've got right to the end of your journey and you're deterred by that kind of thing, it could be quite harmful. The, the angle here, because you mentioned that all of this activity is happening before they arrive as well. And the way you talk about it, people are probably more familiar hearing about this sort of intensity of activity once the student's on campus and they're settling in. But you're talking about the actual process of helping them feel confident enough and reassured enough that they have a network there. When they already yeah. arrive, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Because, like, I, you know, I was thinking about reflecting on my career, like early days of like peer to peer being like, like what Nick says, he doesn't believe it should be, right? Like, but actually, it was like you'll do it to convert someone for their offer, and then it all disappears, and then you'll have some people appear to get you to enroll on campus a few weeks before. But in between, there's nothing, and it definitely feels like it was being done to make you do something. You know, like it's not a, a sort of a genuine human thing; it's a marketing conversion thing. But like what happened, like it still happens a lot, right? You know, people will invest all that time getting people to accept offers. You accept your offer in September, in April, and you're not starting until September. A lot can happen with your confidence about you're making the right decision. Like, and like, it's expensive for an institution to continue to engage in that space. But if the student knows that they can speak to someone who's their person, who already knows them, and they can dip in and out of that when they want, like. Just that action of providing that reassurance and support, I think says a lot to a student that, A, you're willing, that you're invested in them. And also I think it makes it much more likely that those students are going to come and that they're going to come ready to get off to a good start. And all those things are like good things for institutions and students, aren't they? So not thinking about conversion moments only is definitely something that I think people should think about more. This is really interesting from a student perspective. Um, Nick, when we look at how students choose an institution it's it's normally like a hierarchy like course location university sometimes these these change 
but I think what we're, we're talking about here is almost like the, the community element being the, the differentiator, the connections that the individual now has at the institution being the thing that, that gets them there. Have you seen any evidence that this takes place at scale? And do you feel that community as an element, i.e. making friends or connections before you arrive in an institution and being confident of those is a key consideration for students when they're making these choices? Because it used to be about school reputation, prestige and course, and it still is. But to what extent have you seen that community and connection is a driver for students to actually choose in, uh, an institution now? Yeah, I, 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 I have, and I think it's, I think it's a huge one, Kyle. Um, and for me personally, so I should say, I, I kind of started my journey, not because I wanted to create a, a, a company. Actually, I just worked for years with young people. I used to run careers departments in further education colleges in Manchester and London. My job was just to help young people make the next step and get to, get to university. Yeah. And, you know, I, I knew that very early connections that would make them feel, I, I suppose, I suppose we're using semantics here, community, a sense of inclusion, a sense of belonging. It's, it's all kind of the same thing, but you know, I'm very biased. I, I knew they worked from them because, you know, I used to pay student ambassadors from my very small budget, come in and sit down one-on-one. -on -one with young people who maybe just needed that extra bit of confidence, just needed to know that they were going to fit in there, that they could see themselves there. Um, and you know, mm. those, those students have made some absolutely incredible, uh, life-changing journeys yeah. then. So I've always been very biased. I've always thought these connections were, and kind of seeing them play out, obviously through peer-to-peer, -peer, this technology that we build on the institutions use, they work. But I think to answer your specific point, yeah, I think it's super, super important. And we've actually seen lots of nice, these are anecdotal example of, um, prospective students speaking to ambassadors, kind of becoming friends and then meeting them in the, you know, the arrival week in the first couple of weeks of term, seen some incredible examples of that. And I think specifically connecting with other students is really important. Yeah. Um, I think knowing that you've got a network before you reach a new country, a new city institution is super, super important. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're doing some work on that with the, the new community feature that we're mm. rolling out. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, in kind of principle and at a general level, yeah, I think it's, it's super, super important. I think it's less important about who those connections are with. They might be with another incoming student. They might be with, you know, a current student ambassador at the institution, but I think feeling like you have some networks, some connection, so important if you're taking this live changing step, you move into a different country to speak a different language. Like, yeah, it's, it's so powerful, Kyle. I think we also forget how easily younger people now make real connections and friends online. I use a sort of a gaming lens to look at this. When, when I was growing up, I used to have four player in 64 in person around someone's house. My brother is Gen Z. Um, he used to play with friends he met at school, but he used to play online. On, at home on his own and now you see a whole generation with the likes of like roblox and all these kind of massive online games where people make friends literally across the world they never met them in person but they don't have mm. to you know they they're effective at building relationships so there's this belief that a digital relationship is cheaper than a in physical presence one i don't think that's necessarily the the case anymore and it's certainly not the younger generation and equally, you know, the most common way people meet now after dating is online, right? It's through, it's exactly. through the roof. 
look at how that behavior has changed over the last 10 years. It's remarkable. I wish I had the chart with me. It's crazy to look at it. Mm. But yeah, young people today are really comfortable making friends online and then they bring those connections into the real world. So yeah, totally with you. It's, it's interesting to hear about your, your early experience as well. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it, and it's so great if the sector can be a live start. I'm, I was mentioning to you before, Cal, a bit of a history geek in my spare time. And it's exactly the same principle when the telegraph was first invented. People couldn't believe that you could possibly have a meaningful communication across an ocean. And now we can do that instantaneously on a global scale. So of course, the way in which young people are kind of interacting and making friends is rapidly changing with new technology. And I think, you know, that the, the sector's definitely got to keep up with, with pace. Stuart, um, we had a conversation beforehand as well about some of the weird and interesting patterns you're seeing in ambassadors and how they've changed over the years and almost their remit and not necessarily pushed by their schools, but actually led by, by themselves. Um, you've noticed that some of the conversations that are being had between an ambassador and a student, they're also almost turned into more of a consultative sort of perspective. As education marketers, we're not strangers to the idea of getting lots of insights about a market, understanding it before we dive into it. It doesn't seem like it's too different for students either. You said you've perhaps seen examples of where students have had a conversation about a subject area with a peer to explore its potential careers, what the subject's like, and they're taking much more of a future lens on it now. So they're almost using people to get their insights from rather than larger organizations. Could you speak a little bit to that and what you've been seeing? It's a very different way of thinking about the problem, right? I think like there's interesting areas. One of the exciting things about TAP and IDP coming together is this area around people inspiring other people that are similar to them. And there's some really interesting problems occurring already in the world, right? You look at like, for instance, students from certain countries, like students from India going to study in Canada, for instance. Huge volumes of students who just want to go and study in Toronto and they all want to study computing project management. And there is not enough capacity for that. There's not post-study work opportunities for that. And yet you look across the rest of Canada, Canada has an active need to um, educate people in growth industries to immigrate, to study and stay, to meet their workforce needs. Like they want people to do that, their incentives. But if you look at kind of the behavioral trend of students from India, they're very heavily influenced by do something that someone else that you know has done. It's a very strong trend for that sort of culture. So how do you get someone who wants to follow the well-trodden path of their friends and family members um, and help them make a decision that's going to give them more opportunity? Like, how do you get someone to not go to Toronto, but go to Nova Scotia and do aerospace engineering? Or, you know, how do you, how do you do that piece? I feel like there's a power in someone who's similar to you. So it's close to us being as trusted as your friend or family member who's made a different decision inspiring your choice about going to a like secondary city or a less well-trodden location where maybe you'll be a bigger fish in a smaller pond or like it's a smaller community and that will really sort, suit your personality or there's an industry that you hadn't thought about that has huge growth ambitions and jobs that like is this jet that's slightly more specialized than what you were thinking about. It's almost a dead cert that you're going to get a job and good salary trajectory in that, that, that area. And so it's like, if you're a naive decision maker doing all of this, I feel like there's a real big role in universities getting their current students to talk about, um, less common choices that they're trying to, um, uh, encourage more people to do 
because the trend is that people just do the same old things as, as happened the previous year and getting people to diversify geographically within countries or subject wise is extremely hard. Even when you tell people that there's all these jobs, unless it's a TikTok trend, you know, it's, if it, it's, um, you, there was a whole trend in UK universities where suddenly all students studied, um, forensic science because of CSI. And I used to have to stand up at open days and say, the people that you uh, want to be, they didn't, they didn't do the subject. They're actually doctors and you're all applying for criminology and the wrong, you're all applying for the wrong course for the job that you want, but they're actually doing it because of TV, like AI, data science. These are all trends being driven by social media, but I think it shows the power of if people that are like you are talking about things, those things become desirable things. It's not enough for university is to say this is a great thing for you to do this an opportunity because if that was going to work it would have already happened right everyone's already invested lots of money in doing those things and, and kyle if i can just add to that um the, the geek in me wants to say this Stuart, i couldn't agree more i had students we used to have trends of cool things on tv and then our UCAS applications for certain courses would shoot yeah, when I worked exactly. crazy yeah but there's if anyone wants to google there's a really interesting principle to kind of describe what Stuart's talking about and it's called distributed trust and it's kind of an idea to characterize the kind of technological and social moment that we're in which means for example you know the principle of distributed trust means that we don't just have to go on holiday to where you know our next door neighbor goes because we can trust them we can go to Airbnb, we can see reviews, we trust the third party broker and we can go to somewhere interesting. And that's why I think it's another element of what I think makes peer-to-peer -peer so exciting. It, in the higher education context, it gives us the opportunity to create other trusted uh, proponents and brokers for young people so they don't necessarily have to follow those very well-trodden paths. And I think that's so <laughs> fabulous for the young people, but I think it's super exciting if your job's recruiting. Really agree. And the this work that we're going to be doing um, together with clients tap is it is around this, like, how do we, we've got a huge audience of students who are looking to study abroad. How, how do we enable institutions to use their students to create this kind of inspiration, aspiration content that helps students when they're thinking naively about a big decision to realize that there's a diversity of choice out there and things that might be much better options than the things that they were considering, like, like. It's a real lot of power in that kind of you, you, the army of students creating this content that like influences choice. You know, it happens a lot in travel. You know, you can see that like, you know, wanted to go to Thailand, but you want off the beaten track, you go to Laos. Yeah. Like, how do you, how does this happen in education? It happens from customers talking about their decision-making set and to other people who have similar priorities and helping them to see that that might be something that they might want to consider that they weren't previously aware of I think that, that like, like a lot of that kind of choice influence is a really big opportunity that people are not really spending much time thinking about this stuff absolutely works i mean i'm just listening to you here and it reminded me of a story i read recently there's a school in canada it's in the middle of nowhere it's like properly off the beaten track but because international students have consistently gone there and had a good experience over say the last couple of years 80 percent of its students are now international because the school recognized it and served the market, but that wasn't the school actively playing in those markets and trying to create demand for itself. It was because some people discovered it and then more came mm. and it's that peer to peer engine that powers that growth. Yeah. Canada has issues it needs to deal with in terms of all the different laws around that and how they make that mm. sustainable long-term. 
but it's happening and it's all driven by that word of mouth and that that peer-to-peer you mentioned TikTok as well and how trends can kick off like subject interests. Now TikTok's turned into a shop. I'm a little bit concerned about how that impacts the perceptions of yeah. the younger generation coming through, but I think that space is uh, yet to be seen. I want to pull some of our ideas together and just you know, pick into the last um, sort of recommendations and some of your wisdom here. We've seen a lot of different peer-to-peer activities rolled out across different colleges and universities. Um, Nick, I'll start with you on this one. What do you think is the the biggest gap or admission from existing peer-to-peer strategies that people should look to plug or develop in uh, 2024? Yeah, to that, I'm going to reference one of Stuart's points from earlier, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> and that, you know, a, a few years ago when kind of companies like us were fairly new, all the idea of peer-to-peer was new was often being used in a very kind of opportunistic and transactional way. Like you say, Stuart, a very specific moment and you kind of knew it was a marketing tool. I think the next step is for these, this kind of peer, I'm going to call it peer to peer. I think this like peer led approach or student first approach to just become a kind of de facto pillar in institutions, enrollment process or journey, choose your kind of nomenclature and I I think that's inevitable. And I think if you just, you know, I spend a lot of time looking outside of higher ed, actually how, you know, companies or organizations showcase, persuade people to buy, take up opportunities, products, services, experiences, and even something as mundane as buying a pair of Nike trainers. If you go through that buying journey, it is suffused with testimonials, referrals, reviews, user-generated content. Because Nike knows that the best way to sell its trainers is to communicate yeah, honestly with so customers. What we're talking about here are life-changing moves that people are making. So I think, you know, the decision they're making, the product they're buying is, you know, exponentially more important. So it deserves to be kind of, um, to be uh, kind of undergirded by just the most authentic and honest uh, perspectives and advice all stages of the journey from awareness right through to, you know, graduation, it can be done, but certainly mm. post-arrival. Um, and so, sorry, to answer succinctly, because I'm aware that brevity is not my strong point. I just think flipping kind of peer-to-peer from being opportunistic to just being a de facto thing that's used in a nuanced way all through the student journey, I, I, I think that's what's that's what's coming, coming over the next couple of years. And it's hopefully what we're going to be able to champion now with our, our new relationship with, with IDP. Yeah, totally. You're right to mention like what brands are doing with their ambassador relationships. I've seen some commercial brands actually bring their strongest like social ambassadors in in house. So give them roles in marketing teams because they know how to talk about the product, the service, rather than just always paying them a fee every time they they work with them. And equally, some universities are even paying some ambassadors who have established social platforms and who are sending the student a cut of the student fee depending on the number they they send this is the the level that this has got to now this isn't just em- employ your local ambassador and work with them to create a bit of content it can be at quite a strategic level mm. but what about you what's your science stuff coming down the track i think this like idea about uh focusing on curating diverse voices like curating content from your students about the things that you want people to think about in the communities that they are in themselves like like don't think about your own website your own channels think about 
leveraging your students to talk about the things that you want to create co conversations about is how to have decent influence. You know, like every student that you've got is going to have a whole network and a set of different interests and all those channels and communities that are in. How do you encourage people to create content about the things that they're doing and why they chose those things to influence people to make similar decisions to them? Like, how are you emphasizing the, you know, the odd students that you've managed to get on the divert on your priority growth subjects to talk about their experiences to influence other people from those countries and using that to like kind of incubate the growth? Like, there is not a lot of that. Is it? There's a lot of writing course pages and prospectuses and writing websites, but actually, like, getting your customers to speak to the next generation of customers at scale, um, I I think is um, very clearly already here in the world in terms of you look at all the social entrepreneurs and people that are doing things it's all about content it's all about custom communities all about reach like i feel like there's a big opportunity to be crafting that to your own advantage i think increasingly what we see as well is almost some commercial brands working with a set number of ambassadors who they know they want to build into high profile advocates and mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to look very far in our own circles to see this. I mean, you see um, brand beat beat brands on LinkedIn um, working with individuals, evangelists in their company because people respond better yeah. to faith. So we always recruit new ambassadors, and we in higher ed it's normally more of an equal playing field. We have like a, a large number of people we work with. We very rarely work with a few set key individuals and build their profile up over you know, three three or four years. And obviously they will leave, but if you have a program running constantly, you can consistently have people at the head of your institution and be in those faces of it in, in the marketplace. That's going to be a pretty mainstream strategy over the next few years. Also a massively, a great skill you're giving those individuals in the way the world mm -hmm. is right now, like to have those skills plus the subject knowledge that you have. It feels like everything is at the intersection of being good at those two things together. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, lots of opportunities ahead. Thank you both very much for coming on today. Um, before we uh, sign off, what is the best places that people can reach out to you? Uh, yeah, you go first. I think, I think it's probably on my LinkedIn. Um, Carl, you, you, you tagged me in that. I've actually just got my laptop next to me and a couple of people added me. So thank you so much for that. And I just, yeah, love to chat to you about anything ambassadors or, or, or marketing. Great. Yeah, same link, LinkedIn. It's great for me too. Looking forward to talking to about more about this great stuff um everyone if you enjoyed today's live we are doing a series of different takes on ambassadors over the next few months we have some looking at training and we have others looking at more practical day-to-day -day campaign based strategies and um, we've already looked at um, some overarching trends coming to ambassador marketing in our last episode so you can just search back on linkedin or reach out to me individually if you want to get a hold of that content but equally yeah we've got a lot more content coming up on peer, -peer marketing in 2024 and uh, looking forward to seeing you all again soon. So thank you both to our guests, really so, and uh, I'll speak to you again next month.